Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg. I'm being joined today by co-host and News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. Since there's been so much going on in the news lately, we are covering a couple of topics today. First, we'll talk about Supreme Court Justice nominee Amy Coney Barrett and her Indiana ties. And then we'll close out the hour with IU Health's Dr. Dan Handel talking about reopening the state and COVID-19. We have two guests for the first part of the program with us. We have Beth Kate, O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs, um, clinical professor, a clinical associate professor. Sorry, Beth. She's been a frequent guest on our show when issues involving the Supreme Court arise. She also is an attorney. And Alan Ashkar is the editor, executive editor of the South Bend Tribune. His newspaper has done quite a bit of reporting on Judge Barrett, uh, who is a Notre Dame faculty member. You can join us on Twitter if you can follow us at Noon Edition, and you can also send us questions there, and you can send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, thank you, Beth and Alan, for being with us today. I want to start with Alan. Um, you have been aware of, of Amy Coney Barrett for quite some time up there in South Bend. So can you sort of give us an, an overview of her connections to to your community? Yes, can you hear me okay, Bob? Yes, sir. Okay, yes, so uh, Amy Coney Barrett actually is from New Orleans. She grew up in the New Orleans area, uh, but she did go to her uh, introduction to South Bend, came in the ni- late 1990s when she attended Notre Dame's law school and she graduated top of her class. So she was an outstanding student Uh, After graduating, she uh, worked in uh, both some private practice, but also clerked for some justices, and then came back to Notre Dame to to join the faculty in 2002. And she has lived in South Bend and been a Notre Dame professor in that time. Uh, And also in those last 18 years, she uh, and her husband, Jesse, um, have had seven children that they have raised here in South Bend. Two were adopted from Haiti. Um, she has talked uh, publicly about, uh, as she and her husband were preparing to get married, they were very influenced by friends they knew or acquaintances who had adopted from overseas uh, and felt that that was something they wanted to do at some point in their lives. And again, they have done that twice uh, from Haiti. Uh, and uh, really, she her public profile uh, went big in 2017 when she was appointed to a circuit court, circuit appeals court uh, judgeship uh, by President Trump. And then shortly thereafter, not even a year later, she was a finalist for the Supreme Court. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh got that pick, but Amy Coney Barrett, by all accounts, was one of the top three or four finalists for that position. And uh, sure enough, she was the pick this time when the seat came open again. So that is a very quick introduction to her and her ties to South Bend. All right. Well, we'll be back to you in a, a few minutes to talk more about, you know, her public profile up there. But Beth, Kate, what do you see as, uh, you know, the importance that, you know, there have been lots and lots of things that that have been talked about on the news. But how do you see her nomination shaping the court? Sure. So um, thanks, uh, first of all, for having me. Can you hear me OK? Yes. Yes, we can. Okay, great. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of discussion before Justice Ginsburg's death um, in kind of the postmortem on this Supreme Court term about this really being John Roberts' court and that he was uh, kind of aggressively trying to build coalitions to, 
issue rulings that would uh, preserve the integrity of the court and the perceived integrity of the court uh, because he cares so much about the institutional reputation of the court and so on. And uh, to some extent, a you know, losing Justice Ginsburg and replacing her with a conservative justice is going to, whether it's Amy Coney Barrett or someone else, you know, now it, obviously she's the nominee, uh, challenges um, Chief Justice Roberts' power, if you will, to some extent uh, to achieve some of the, um, uh, you know, 5-4 rulings uh, where he was um, voting with what are typically called the liberal justices to, uh, you know, um, to just kind of have an outcome that is going to be perceived as, you know, or he thought would be perceived as less uh, politicized. And so, you know, it's just, it, you end up with um, potentially a very solid conservative block of six justices and Roberts himself is a conservative justice. Uh, if you look at his, his voting history. So, um, so I think that, you know, in, in that sense, like the big question and, people's minds and no one really knows until you know she's on the court and and we start to see cases uh is is what is this going to look like and how much would um his desire to try to steer the court uh in a direction that will uh, preserve in people's mind the notion that this is not just politicians in robes it is you know people doing law uh how much that will um influence her and how she approaches cases i mean if you compare to Kavanaugh, for example, Justice Kavanaugh came on. He's actually voted really quite a bit in lockstep with Chief Justice Roberts since he's gotten on the court. Um, she will, you know, also face, I think, a fairly uh, aggressive um, hearing process, not in quite the same way as Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think for him, it sort of scarred him enough that when he came on the court, he's been sort of actively trying to uh, steer a mild course. And uh, with with uh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, I, I really, I don't know. I don't see quite the same factors uh, necessarily limiting her, but it's so hard to say. You know, um, she's been on the appeals court only three years she has some decisions on the appeals court, uh, but when you get on the Supreme Court, you don't have the same restrictions that you do uh, when you're an appeals court judge. At the same time, uh, you know, you're joining a very small group, and I think there are just some, some dynamics on the court that uh, could shape anyone when they go on there and they try to figure out how, how bold uh, and aggressive to be in uh, pursuing what they think is the appropriate judicial path versus hanging back for a little while and, and getting your footing. So. Yeah, if I could follow up about about Justice Roberts, I mean, I think it was believed pretty strongly when he was named to the court that he would be a strong conservative voice on the court. And that hasn't necessarily turned out to be the case. Yeah, I mean, sort of yes and no. You know, it's it, it, people point to some of the decisions where he's, if you will, crossed the aisle. Um, and obviously with another challenge to Obamacare uh, coming up this term, people are pointing back to his decisions uh, in uh, earlier challenges to Obamacare as one example, the recent vote on the June medical case involving abortion rights as another, um, the Title VII cases and so on. Uh, and um, and I, I think it's fair to say that he has really, his institutionalist side has um, uh, caused him to try to really look for coalitions and build some coalitions where uh, the court will move incrementally. It will not take bold steps uh, in certain areas that are highly controversial or would make the court look in, in particular politicized. Um, I think it, uh, his his votes and his writing, he's actually you know, taken when he's in the majority, he gets to decide who writes the decisions. And a lot of times that's been him. <laughs> and then he gets to sort of steer that path even more. Uh, and so in cases like the census case and in the DACA case, uh, where he was, I think, making a strong statement about we have some baseline minimum expectations when public servants uh, issue regulations or they, they take certain actions in the administration, they're going to be uh, honest and above board in describing why they're doing what they're doing, 
uh, and uh, and have that be reasonable and take into account the effects of that. All of that, yes, sounds like, you know, people point to this and say that John Roberts is not a, you know, a, a sort of conservative in the way people might have expected. At the same time, um, he has cast plenty of uh, conservative votes uh, as well uh, on the First Amendment um, with respect to uh, religious freedom. For example, uh, a topic that has come before the court a lot in recent years. Um, so, you know, it's a it's a mixed bag with him, I think. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you this question, uh, but I want to get Alan Ashkar's uh, take on it first. I mean, a lot of the critics of of uh, Judge Barrett have talked about her um, being sort of being very, um, very conservative to the point of, you know, very religious conservative and, you know, I guess people on the liberal side have not been very kind to her and think that she's going to be a radical who's going to overthrow all sorts of liberal ideas. And I want to ask you, Alan, first, um, I know she's very popular in Notre Dame, uh, at Notre Dame. And are people in South Bend and at Notre Dame talking about her as, I mean, do they see this side of her or do they think that she will be a, a very measured and um, very smart jurist? So that's actually a complicated question. And I think it goes to uh, her personal life as well and aspects of that. So let me unpack that. Uh, On the Notre Dame campus, she has three times been voted professor of the year. So that attests to how popular she is among students who say she is big on mentoring. She thinks that's a very important role for a professor and they praise her for her smarts, her teaching and her mentoring. When she was nominated for the appeals court in 2017, every single member of the Notre Dame law faculty signed a letter to the president uh, uh, supporting her nomination. So that was a unanimous essential vote by her colleagues. So, and Father Jenkins, the president of Notre Dame has said repeatedly, he thinks she's a terrific choice for the Supreme Court. So yes, on the Notre Dame campus, as a teacher, as a lecturer, as a uh, Legal mind, she's very well respected, universal praise about how intelligent she is and well thought out. Where the controversy has come largely is within her personal life. She is a devout Catholic and makes no qualms about that. Um, It's her association with a group called People of Praise that has raised eyebrows. Let me give you a quick background on that group. Uh, It is a Christian group. It is not affiliated with any church. It is primarily Catholic, but there are some other Christian denominations who are involved in that group. Formed in the 1970s, early 1970s, in South Bend, around the Notre Dame campus. It grew out of the Pentecostal movement, and so it shares many of the elements that you would traditionally think of with the Christian Pentecostal Pentecostal movement. Uh, it's not a very large group. They've got about 2,000 members now worldwide. A few hundred, I'd say three to 400 of those are in South Bend. Um, the reason it's drawn uh, attention is there have been accusations from former members that the group is dominated by men, that it can be very controlling, um, that key decisions are heavy-handedly imposed on members, and that if you disagree with the views or try to leave, you are shunned. The other thing that's gotten a lot of attention, uh, the group believes in heads or mentors to sort of coach other members. Um, They used to be called handmaids. The women were called handmaids at one time. It is a phrase that the group no longer uses. They've distanced themselves from that phrase because the negative connotation that handmaids has come to have. Um, The group denies most of these accusations. They say we're not heavy-handed, Uh, While men are in leadership positions, this is not a sexist organization, um, and that they do not interfere uh, in a heavy-handed way in people's personal lives. It is a community. They come together to worship, to advise each other, but this is strictly a community group. Um, And there's the term cult has been thrown around, which they bristle at. Um, they say they absolutely are not that, and certainly in their members' professional lives, they insist they take no role, and they say they have said back in 2018, they said, look, if she becomes a judge, we're not going to be affecting her rulings. She is her own person. Um, so 
it has attracted a lot of attention because I think it, it's it's a small group. It's not in the mainstream. Um, and there are former members who have expressed a lot of reservations and criticisms of the organization. Uh, it's pretty clear that Amy Coney Barrett was a member of People of Praise for many years. Uh, but recently, the group has taken moves to sort of wipe that out. So, for example, in the last few days on their website, they've tried to remove all references to her. They said they've done that to, because they like to protect the privacy of their members. She has not spoken publicly about it. So it's unclear if she is still a member, even though she has been for years and her parents have been leaders in the organization. Um, but it's unclear if today she is still a member. I suspect this is going to come up uh, in the hearings. Um, and then, of course, there's been a lot of focus on her views on abortion, which I don't know if we want to go into that now, but we can certainly talk about that as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, just briefly, I mean, what are her views? And I think we all... Probably if we've been paying attention, we know, but if you could just expand on that a little bit. So um, one key piece that's been, again, she's a devout Catholic and says she, you know, believes, so that would lead one to assume that personally she would be pro-life. That's not a difficult conclusion to reach. People of Praise, the group I mentioned, is on record saying they are also pro-life. So again, not a huge leap of assumption to make. Uh, But there are two pieces that sort of lend credence to that. Um, She was in 2015, at least, part of a a group at Notre Dame called Faculty for Life. Um, She did sign a letter. She was one of of the faculty members who signed a letter to the Catholic bishops affirming the teachings of the Catholic Church, including the sanctity of life. And then the news that broke this week that drew national attention yesterday, um, the local uh, St. Joseph County Right to Life, which is a local uh, pro-life group here in our county, every year takes out an ad in my newspaper, the South Bend Tribune, in which hundreds of people in the community sign a, it's an ad, and hundreds of people attach their names to it, uh, affirming the sort of pro-life, uh, anti-abortion views. Um, it's saying we oppose abortion and, and we, we choose life. And in 2006, Amy Coney Barrett and her husband signed that Ad, their name was included in the ad. In other words, they they threw their support behind this uh, pro-life uh, declaration. So that would indicate, as if people didn't already assume they did, that she is personally at least uh, very much pro-life. That has Roe v. Wade proponents nervous. Uh, but Amy has said repeatedly in public that she doesn't believe a judge's personal views should affect their rulings, and that she always separates her personal beliefs from her rulings. So that's the shortened version on the abortion Roe v. Wade issue. Okay. Sarah? Beth, I, I want to ask you, We've in talking about Amy Coney Barrett, we've talked a lot about Roe versus Wade and even the Affordable Care Act. Um, but how, how likely is it that one of those issues will be among the first to come up? I mean, what are some of the first cases that maybe she'll be a part of? Well, there's a case uh, in the Supreme Court term, this coming term. In fact, it's coming up in early uh, November on Obamacare. Uh, And so back in the first challenge to Obamacare, one of the challenges was whether the individual mandate was constitutional. And five justices said, well, it's unconstitutional as a, a a regulation of interstate commerce, but John Roberts, uh, who was, you know, who said, yes, no commerce clause power to do this, but he said, it's a tax. Um, I see it as a tax and the court, generally the Supreme Court and courts are uh, under an obligation to try to find legislation constitutional if they can. And he said, given that obligation, I think it's reasonable to read the penalty that you pay if you don't get health insurance under this individual mandate as a tax and upheld it in that way. Uh, Fast forward to 2017 and the Trump administration and and Congress uh, signed into law a Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which zeroed out the penalty that you pay if you don't get insurance. And that then led to another challenge to the individual mandate saying, hey, there's no more tax here. And therefore, now there's no constitutional justification for this piece of Obamacare and then took the next step and said, and if this goes, the whole statute has to go. The whole law goes, including 
protection for uh, people with pre-existing conditions to get access to health care, for example. And so that's what's being fought about this fall. And so if she is confirmed um, in time for that oral argument, she'd participate in the oral argument and then in the decision on that case. Uh, it, she could participate even if she's not confirmed in time for the oral argument or doesn't participate in the oral argument, but that's more rare. Um, so, so that's coming up. And then in terms of abortion, I think it's fair to say that states uh, are passing and have continued to pass in recent years uh, many, many regulations of uh, access to abortion and uh, procedures and so on, and so including in Indiana. Uh, and so uh, the court is bombarded all the time with petitions to <laughs> take up issues of abortion. And I, I don't think uh, that's likely to change. So then the question will be, uh, is she going to be a vote to not just take one of those cases, but to take it and overturn the basic right identified in Roe versus Wade? On the one hand, um, she has said in speeches as a professor that she's given that uh, she doesn't think the Supreme Court will overturn Roe so much as continue to uphold various state regulations that continue to restrict or regulate access to abortion. Um, on the other hand, she has also written in uh, articles, again, as a professor, about stare decisis, you know, and that people talk about Roe versus Wade as a super precedent and that the principle of stare decisis, let it stand if it's been decided, uh, should protect Roe. And she has suggested in those writings, not with respect to abortion per se, but more generally, uh, that um, stare decisis shouldn't overly restrict courts, uh, that it may pose even due process problems if it's too constricting and doesn't allow courts to revisit earlier precedents that might have been wrongly decided. But, you know, again, you just, you really, you don't know um, uh, whether, uh you know, she's going to go in for overturning the basic premise of Roe uh, as an originalist. Uh, she builds herself as an originalist. I think she emerges that way in, in some of the cases I've seen uh, from her on the Seventh Circuit. And, um, you know, versus just saying, okay, I'm going to do what the court's been doing, which is assuming the right exists, will they uphold various regulations uh, of abortion? So... Stay tuned. All right, we will. We're talking about Supreme Court Justice nominee Amy Coney Barrett today uh, on the first oh, two-thirds or so of our program. We have Beth Kate O'Neill, School of Public and Environmental Affairs, clinical professor, uh, clinical associate professor. at, at She's with SPIA. <laughs> and <laughs> Alan Ashgar, South Bend Tribune executive editor. So if you have questions for us. You can get to us through Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can also send us uh, your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. So, Beth, do you see her as an automatic vote on the right? Um, hmm. Well, I mean, it's a good question. I, uh, I suspect that she, you know, she's uh, an originalist. She is a textualist. Um, and I think that she will approach and continue to approach cases in that way. Um, I think there is a, a tendency to equate the concept of a conservative or liberal justice with uh, policy outcomes, um, the political or policy outcomes. And I think that's a little unfortunate. Um, I do think that she's likely to be a conservative justice in how she approaches uh, interpreting the Constitution, interpreting statutes. Um, but uh, I wonder if she will end up being a little bit like Gorsuch. You know, Gorsuch came out and he wrote the uh, three cases this past term, which held that uh, the federal non-discrimination law and employment uh, banned discrimination against people for uh, being gay or transgender. Um, and, the, and did that on strict textualist grounds. You know, so he's a bit of a... Uh, look, I'm going to approach uh, jurisprudence in this way and let the chips fall where they may in terms of the, you know, policy outcomes and whether they match up with what the right from a policy or politics sense wants. Um, so uh, so she may end up 
uh, being a little bit more like that, actually. Well, Alan and I are, are mere journalists, but Alan, I think you you sort of alluded to this. You, you said that, you know, she, she says that she won't let her personal views get into how she in, interprets the law. She will base her decisions based on the law. And Beth, I, you know, I've always uh, sort of held out the, the hope that people who are nominated and then seated on the Supreme Court or a, or any court are going to try to follow the law and interpret the law in their the best way that they can. So I guess my question for for Beth in particular, but Alan, you certainly can join in here. Is you know how how uh, you know these fights over the Supreme Court have become so political in recent years, and maybe they always have been, but that the notion that um, you know Supreme Court is sort of looked at people all on either side will say, well, these activist judges want to do this, want to do that. I mean, this activist judges, how fair is that? Oh, you know, I mean, you can find activism on uh, both sides of the received spectrum. I think Um, if you're talking about how uh, justices approach the interpretation of very broadly worded constitutional language, Um, even, you know, um, Amy Coney Barrett uh, clerked for Justice Scalia, and uh, who was a sort of famous originalist, and he spoke of, uh, not, you know, it's it's judicial restraint to take an originalist approach because what you're saying is we are bound in how we read this language by history and by what we can see in the historical record. People in the 18th century who wrote this language thought they that it meant, um, but you know, justices are not trained historians. And, uh, and so you can also see great amounts of debate over what the historical record even is. And so people make choices in that. And, you know, is that activism too? Um, so, you know, I, I think that people will sort of see this, I, I, but I will say you can uh, take some comfort, I think, from the fact that uh, justices and judges have to publish their decisions. For the most part, they do publish their decisions and they write out their reasoning. And um, it has to make sense or else you can spot where it doesn't or where you think that this is being driven by other considerations. And so um, so that itself uh, helps to uh, try to keep judges and justices honest and try to anchor what they do in the law. Um, and, you know, I, I think I haven't read everything that she's written, but uh, in the opinions that I've read, she seems to be writing in a very careful way. And uh, and she certainly as a, you know, a Seventh Circuit judge, she has to hew to precedent uh, from the Supreme Court. Um, but when she's a justice on the Supreme Court, assuming she gets there, and I think there's every reason to assume that um, right now, uh, you know, she will have more flexibility to revisit precedents that she might have thought were wrongly decided um, based on her approach. So, you know, yeah, (laughs) activism. It's it's everywhere if you're looking for it. Um, I I sometimes think that people overstate uh, what they think are the politics driving justices and they um, underappreciate the drive to try to understand this as applying law, even if you know, reasonable people disagree about the interpretation of the meaning of law. Uh, if these cases were easy, we wouldn't all be fighting about them all the time. So it suggests that there are competing yet reasonable interpretations. Sarah? Hey, you know, Bob, we... Oh, go ahead, Al. Yeah, yeah, no, there's this dance that unfolds every time someone is nominated by either party. So, you know, the... Potential justice insists that their personal views will not influence their judgments. The opposite party accuses them of being an activist judge and then pours over every micro crumb of their past, everything they did from first grade onto their more recent career to find evidence of how evil they are. And then the party that likes them will insist they're the most brilliant, experienced legal mind in the history of the law. So we play this dance you know, and it's playing out now with Amy Coney Barrett uh, as well as we're seeing this. You know, the only clue, and it's been hit on, she clerked for Justice Scalia. She has said many times she is a big devotee of his originalist uh, philosophy of judging. And so that gives you, I guess, the best clue 
um, of how she would real, uh, rule on uh, on certain cases. So, you know, it's I, I, we, we see this pattern playing out again. She's the greatest thing on one side, the other side saying she's scary and she's going to do this and she's going to dismantle this, this and this. At the end of the day, I don't think we're really going to know until she's seated. I think the, the one issue that's also really interesting here, it's hard to separate politics on this one in that the Republicans want her seated before the election uh, because if the election uh, or an aspect of the election gets contested and goes to the Supreme Court, they want that you know potential extra conservative voice to rule on it. And this is, I think, as a result, a confirmation vote that's got an extra political bent to it because everyone's got an eye on that election. Um, and I think that's where you're seeing an extra dose of politics this time. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Sarah? And calls for her recusal, for example, if there is that kind of challenge. Yeah, just keeping that in mind, I'm just wondering about just sort of the, the long-term effects here and if it's possible there's any kind of court reform if <laughs> she's confirmed. I mean, I, you know, Democrats are already talking about uh, the prospect of um, – if they are able to keep the House, take the Senate, take the White House uh, to try to get some court reform in place, there is a bill that was supposed to be proposed, I think, this week, but I haven't seen it yet, uh, to limit terms um, of Supreme Court justices and to do that by legislation, which it's unclear you could actually do that by legislation as opposed to requiring a constitutional amendment. Um, but there have been proposals to uh, just broaden the number of justices on the court. Uh, so, and to try to, if you will, then give, you know, the next president, a Democrat, many more slots to fill, presumably with justices that would uh, reflect um, that president's uh, ideological bent toward constitutional interpretation and so on. Um, one of the more interesting proposals I've seen uh, out of a professor at Rutgers is why don't we just treat the court like um, like we do the circuit courts, meaning um, let's let's not just go up to 11 or 15 justices or whatever it will take to now get a liberal majority, um, but let's go up to 27 and do panels that are randomly picked. Uh, and so try to dial down the um, the intensity uh, and the politics uh, surrounding having only nine people and really only needing five for a majority vote. So, so yeah, there's there's talk of reform in the wind. Whether it will come about um, is anyone's guess. Uh, I'm not holding out a huge amount of hope for that. Only got a couple minutes to go uh, on this segment of the program, Beth. I wanted you to to um, if you could. Look back in history. I mean, the what uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate did in in not allowing a vote on Merrick Garland for ten months and then rushing this one through. You know, it looks like to the to the naked eye, it looks like hypocrisy in the greatest sense. But then McConnell says, "Well, you know, we voters voted for us, so we can do what we want now." Um, what kind of precedent is there for that? Do you? Well, I mean, filling an empty seat in an election year is actually not unusual, although this is very close to the mark. I don't know that we've had uh, anyone confirmed after July, I think, uh, was what uh, the data we're looking at, I was looking at before. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, to, to my eye, it seems a little hypocritical, too, particularly because the statements about the clear mandate that the uh, Senate got in 2018, the Republicans got in Senate uh, in 2018, is a little overstated. I think it, you know, their majority didn't go up a huge amount. They lost the House. Um, and it wasn't all about uh, judges necessarily, although the Supreme Court's always in people's minds. Um, but we've had uh, a number of empty seats filled in election years. This is extremely close. Uh, the, re the fact that we had uh, empty seats filled in election years is what made it so um, really outrageous not to give Merrick Garland uh, a hearing um, when there was, I think, 270 days there before the election. And now we are literally counting down um, the last 30 plus days. So, you know, there's, uh, there's precedent for um, justices to get confirmed. Um, this is bringing it much closer to the mark. And in a, in a year where this is a hotly contested election, and the other thing I'll say about the mandate, sorry, I know we're close on time, is um, 
you know, claims about, well, they voted us in. Well, look at the electoral map back in 2018. I mean, Republicans were in very safe positions then. That is not the case here. It's exactly the flip of that. Uh, And so there's maybe a stronger argument to say, hey, leave it for the voters. And recent polling shows a majority of Americans wanting the next president to pick this justice. So... All right. Thank you very much, Beth Kate and Alan Ashkar. Alan's from the South Bend Tribune. Beth is with the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Thanks for joining us to talk about Amy Coney Barrett. We're going to be back in just a second with Dan Handel from uh, IU Health. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh-huh. All right. Now we're going to switch over very quickly. Um, Dr. Handel, you're here with us now. And I guess we want to switch and talk about coronavirus and COVID and about the um, the recent decision by uh, the governor to move Indiana to stage five. And I should say, I should give Dr. Dr. Handel a little bit better introduction than that. He's the chief medical officer for I, the IU Health South Central region. So were you surprised to hear that Indiana would be moving to stage five? Well, first of all, it's good to talk with you again, Bob. I, I, I think, you know, the, the biggest challenge is that it's important to really localize the restrictions based on the community. Um, I understand from the governor's perspective, the overall numbers are trending in the right direction. I mean, if you check out the, the State Department of Health, you know, we're in the 4% positive range, um, which is usually below the 5% threshold that most states are using to ease restrictions. Um, obviously, Monroe County has taken a more restrictive bent, which makes sense when you have a highly mobile college community um, where it's not only their mobility within Bloomington and Monroe County, but throughout the state as they come from all over the state. So I, mean, I definitely appreciate why there's, we still maintain a more restrictive um, guidelines in Monroe County compared to the rest of the state. So as the uh, state does reopen, I mean, I think it's worth going over uh, what that means and how people can protect themselves. I mean, maybe maybe eventually Monroe County will reopen as well. But, you know, you you certainly serve people who are well outside of, of Monroe County. So, you know, what do you recommend to people if they're going to now be able to go into a place that has a, a 100% capacity? I think it's it's it gets back to the basics. I remember when you you and I first talked in March. It's social distancing. It's wearing the mask. It's hand washing. I mean, none of those strategies have changed throughout the course of 2020. And I I think people just have to be mindful of the environment they're in. And if you can maintain uh, the six feet, um, great. Do that. If not, you have to wear you know it's, you have to wear a mask, and that's still in stage five. You know, obviously the weather's getting a little cooler now. And so doing outdoor dining, which has been a nice change, is going to get a little harder logistically. Um, but I, I think people just have to be mindful of that. And it, I know this has been going on a long time, but it's we just have to remain diligent because we're not through this yet. Actually, if you look at the R value, which is the reproductive um, number for the state of Indiana, we're fourth highest in the country right now. So we are definitely not at a point where we're trending down. So we just have to remain vigilant. Yeah, can you explain that a little bit more? I'm not sure that I understand R value. Sure, so the R R number is the effective reproduction number. So basically it's, are we spreading to more people um, for every person who gets infected? So one is for every person who gets infected, they, they spread it to one other person. If it's less than one, that's better. This means less people are getting, catching the virus from others and you want that number to be less than one. Right now, as of September 29th, Indiana's at 1.18. The only states that are higher than us right now are Montana, Massachusetts, and Wyoming at the highest of 1.27. So as long as you have a number greater than one, that means we're heading in the wrong direction in terms of containing the virus. So how is IU Health doing? I mean, can you talk to us in terms of capacity and are you, you know, still prepared if a surge comes? Uh, and what have you learned since we first talked in March? Well, I th- thankfully we're doing well in this region. Um, different parts of the state are busier than others. Our colleagues up in the Muncie area are quite busy right now. 
I mean, I think I want to give credit to President McRobbie and Provost Robel for doing a nice job of being very strict with the guidelines for students as they came onto campus. So most of the people who are turning positive in Monroe County are younger ages, which is translating to lower hospitalization rates. So we only have a handful of people in the hospital um, who are COVID positive at this time. The, we, we are busy. We have a lot of people who unfortunately delayed care during the pandemic. So we're trying to get caught up and making sure that they caught up, get caught up and get their healthcare needs met. Unfortunately, chronic diseases do not take a break during a pandemic. So we're really trying to make sure they, they get caught up, they get into the clinics um, to get seen if they have surgeries that they've delayed, that we're getting those surgeries completed for them. And we've taken a lot of steps to be very intentional of keeping people safe when they do come into our hospitals, when they do come into our clinics, with social distancing, with barriers, with allowing people to wait in their cars until it's time for them to come in, um, with screening of people to make sure if they're having symptoms that we're keeping them and the people taking care of them safe. So we're talking with Dr. Dan Hamdell, the Chief Medical Officer for IU Health South Central Region. If you have a question, you can send it to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I mean, this is this topic, um, you know, it comes in and out of consciousness. There's so much news going on. But of course, today we have the news that President uh, Trump and First Lady Melania Trump have both tested positive. So I think this is probably on more people's minds today than maybe it was yesterday. So it's it's a moving it's a moving target, this virus. Um, so winter is approaching. And I know we've talked before and we've talked with other health experts before about the need to get a flu shot to to be able to protect yourself from influenza as well. Could you walk us through that? Why why protecting yourself from influenza is important in trying to keep COVID under control? I think this year more than ever, um, it's important for people to get their flu shots early. We're now entering the window where it's the right time to get the flu shot. And it's just getting vaccinated for the flu means it's one less virus you have to worry about. There's nothing that says that you can't get both flu and COVID. And since the only vaccine we have right now is for the flu, that's where we're encouraging people to get as one less thing that they're at risk for. Um, the Monroe County Health Department's done a great job and we partner closely with them about setting up opportunities for people to get vaccinated all throughout the county. Um, IU Health has a lot more flu vaccines available this year and years past. And our goal is to make sure that we use every single one of them to make sure that as many people as we can get vaccinated. Got a question from Sarah, and she's asking about immunity from COVID. So if you get COVID, do you have any idea, Dr. Handel, about how long immunity lasts after recovery? Um, I think the jury's still out on a definitive answer. The best numbers I've seen so far is about three months. So, um, and the thing we don't know yet is is this virus mutating in any way? So are there different strains so that you may get one and another? And I think that's what they're trying to figure out. So uh, I, I don't think people think if they've had it, they, they can stop doing the masking, the distancing, the hand washing. It's, 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 as far as we know from the science we've seen, it's a very transient phenomenon. How successful do you think the, the uh, masking mandate in, throughout the state and also, of course, locally ha- has been? I think it's only as good as we enforce it. Um, I, I can tell you, um, I think Bloomington, um, to its credit, has been better than some other communities around us about enforcing it. Um, and it's hard, I get it. People are tired of doing the masking, of staying away from their friends and family, but it's, it's just something we, we gotta keep going until it's clear that we're out of the woods. So what are you, uh, when I, I think I asked earlier, you know, what, what, have, what have you learned since March? I mean, I know when we have uh, Dr. Tom Rasmalis on, he mm-hmm. said that, the, that physicians have found better ways of treatment. Um, so, you know, is it as scary to you now as it was back then? I think as we learn more, I think we get more comfortable about what we need to do to protect patients and ourselves when we're taking care of patients. I mean, I can tell you I'm a practicing emergency physician um, in our region. And I, I know there's a, a routine I go through now where in terms of wearing masks, when do I have to put a face shield, goggles? 
what do I do in terms of at the end of the shift, how do I basically decontaminate myself to protect my family? So I think it's, we're, we're getting better with it because the more we know, I think the more comfortable we are with knowing what we need to do. Um, I still think there's a lot that still needs to be done. And if you think about it, the pace of change and knowledge that we're gaining compared to past infections um, is way faster. I mean, if you think about how many years we spent studying the HIV virus in the early 80s compared to what we're learning by, week by week as we do this, I think that the knowledge is gaining, but at the same time, we just have to be cautious that any knowledge, any data or studies we're looking at that are validated so we're not reacting to less than optimal studies. You know, and I think you know, that, that kind of came out early on with the hydroxychloroquine, where some preliminary studies which hadn't been fully vetted were suggesting it was beneficial, but when you really look deeper at the data, that didn't pan out. But I think that the, the medications we're using now throughout IU Health um, have sustained um, their, their evidence and their support over the past couple of weeks and months. So, but we're constantly looking at the data again. We have Dr. Ismalis is part of a larger system infection prevention team that meets twice weekly and they'll look at the latest data and say, okay, what are the studies showing us now? Do we need to change anything in our treatment algorithms throughout IU Health across the state? What do we keep? What do we get rid of? So it's a constant reflection of what do we need to do to improve how we take care of patients. We've gotten a couple questions about MCC returning to school uh-huh. and also, of course, IU and then spreading the virus to the community. Um, can you talk a little bit about how even if it is young people, as it is here in Monroe County, that make up the majority of the cases, how the virus affects them and if that is different than how it affects older adults? Yeah, no, I, I, I think um, MCCSC has done a great job in terms of being very deliberate about their green, yellow, and red um, targets in terms of percent positivity, trending up, trending down. Um, Thankfully, kids who do get sick, it's very rare um, where they have a severe inflammatory response. Um, As far as I know, we have not seen any children with those severe symptoms in Monroe County, but it's something we're we're being mindful of. And Dr. Jim Laughlin, who um, is one of our physician leaders um, through our medical group here in Bloomington, has been working closely with the county along with Dr. Scott Moore, another one of our pediatricians, about really looking at the evidence. So the, the asymptomatic spread, the studies have shown, is a lot less in children than it is in adults. Um, so, I mean, we've had a handful, as, as, as the news outlets have reported, of positive cases of students, um, but those have been relatively well contained. So I, I think it's, you know, you're trying to, embar- you're trying to inherently balance the need for children to have in-person education and the social benefits above and beyond what they're learning in school that's needed with that while also maintaining the safety of the students, the safety of the teachers who are working with them and the community at large. So, you know, I, I think it makes sense that the counties or the school corporations doing a month by month assessment of what needs to be done and it's just looking at trajectories of the cases in Monroe County. We got a question about how IU Health is preparing for 2021 given the latest reports that there might not be a vaccine until Mm -hmm. late 2021. We are we are preparing for the worst hoping for the best. Um, We are planning as if there won't be a vaccine in terms of making sure we have stockpiled enough PPE throughout the year for 2021, making sure that um, we, we, we have the resources we need if there is another significant spike that leads to a lot of hospitalizations. Um, hopefully the vaccine becomes available before the end of 21, and then if so, great, we're, we've been prepared, but we're taking a very conservative approach just to make sure we can meet the needs of our communities. Oh, if I can follow up on that, what, when a lot of people are seeing the vaccine as as a silver bullet that everybody can get back to their normal lives once the vaccine is available. Can you sort of walk us through what happens when a new vaccine is here? I mean, are we going? Is it going to be a hundred percent effective, fifty percent effective? I, I know you probably don't know the answer to that totally, but how does a new vaccine actually? How is it measured, and and how do we know it works? I you know the challenge with vaccine studies is that they require time in terms of the stage trials to really see how effective they are. And part of that is you get a, you get a, you're in the trial group, 
you get a shot and then you see, okay, a month from now, two months from now, six months from now, who got infected versus not. I, no vaccine has been 100% effective. Um, you know, if you remember with the, the flu shots, you know, some years have worked better than others in terms of really doing that. The same thing with the, the vaccines that we've gotten over the years. So I, I think even when we start getting to a critical mass of people being vaccinated, it will get us much further down the road of really knocking this down into a manageable um, infection rate that, that our number we talked about. But I think there's still going to be masking, social distancing for, for, for a while after we get to a critical mass of people who get vaccinated. I'm going to revisit this. We've talked about this before, and I just want to ask this question again, since we're you know six months down the road. But a lot of people early on tried to equate the uh, COVID-19 with influenza. And what, what's the data really been showing us? I, I think that particularly in our older populations that we found that that COVID is a much more virulent virus than the typical flu. I mean, yes, we do have a, a number of people who die every year from the flu, but because our bodies have never really seen this virus before, um, we have seen people who are fine and then get sick very rapidly and die, which is not something we've seen with flu, at least in my lifetime. So I, I, I think it, I, it still does not bear out that it can be compared as something as minor as the flu, um, just just based on how sick some people have gotten so quickly. Okay, so last thing, we only have about a minute to go. So if uh, everybody out there listening were your patient, what would you tell them to do to keep themselves safe? Number one, keep on wearing a mask, keep the patience and keeping this up. Number two, get your flu shot. All right, well, we are out of time. I wanna thank you very much for being with us. Dr. Handel, it's always a pleasure. My pleasure. Good talking to you. All right. Thanks. So I also want to thank Beth Kate and Alan Ashgar for the first half of the program. And I want to thank our uh, co-hosts, Sarah Whitmire, producers Benta Boutier and John Bailey, engineers Matt Stonecipher and Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.